0: In the name of the Father, and the Son, and God's Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Why do you suppose it was the Samaritan, and not the priest, or the Levite, who stopped that day and helped that poor stricken man? Why? In this, probably the most famous of all of Jesus' parables... um, I suppose there's any number of possible answers. The most obvious uh, probably revolves around the whole issue of courage. I mean, maybe of the three who were walking along the road that day, the Samaritan was just the bravest. A careful reading of the story uh, would tend to uh, point in that direction. When Jesus says the man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, you know, Speaking quite literally. If you know much about the topography of Palestine, you know that Jerusalem is at about 2,300 feet above sea level. Jericho, right by the Dead Sea, is about 600 feet below sea level, which means that in just a short span of miles, there is a precipitous drop And, of of course, any road in that kind of terrain is of necessity going to have to be very windy and circuitous. You know as well as I do, you don't make a lot of time on mountain roads. In this case, there's also a desert on either side. So it would have been very easy for thieves to park right around that incredible turn, jump a person coming along, beat them, and then just as easily disappear into the desert. So in that day, that particular stretch of road was known as the Red and Bloody Way, pointing to the kind of violence that Jesus is talking uh, about here. So it was just conventional wisdom of that day that you didn't travel that stretch of road alone. And if you had to travel it by yourself, you'd to not put yourself in a compromising situation. So it could be that as each of these men made their way along the road, they saw this beaten man, and in every heart, there was an initial flash of compassion. Never forget that we are, every one of us, created in the image of a loving and caring God. However, In the case of the priest and the Levite, another emotion quickly followed that initial burst, and that was the reality of fear. They may well have said to themselves, as you and I have said before, how do I know that if I stop, the same thing isn't going to happen to me? How do I know that this guy is not a decoy who is designed to make me stop? And so, with that kind of thinking, they did something that has happened to me again and again in my life. And that is that fear cast out love. They found themselves more concerned with their own safety than anything else. And therefore, though they felt genuine compassion, fear became the dominant emotion. So they quickly passed by and just as quickly tried to put that thought out of their minds. Now, the Samaritan must have had that initial reaction as well, a flash of compassion followed by a counterpunch of fear. But perhaps he had something in his heart that day that was greater than his fear. Just maybe, in this case, love cast out fear rather than the other way around. Now, of course, we don't know that that's what happened. But if it is, it raises the question, what is the secret of courage? How do we get in touch with something that is greater than our fear? And, of course, that implies to us not just as individuals, but as a people. Leo Buscaglia, who died just a number of years ago, Uh, Used to say that you can look at reality in one of two ways. You can either look at life fearfully or you can look at life lovingly. Fear, he said, is the suspicion that there is not enough. There is not enough food in the world to feed everybody, there is not enough medical attention for all of us in this society. There is not enough love in this family for both me and my brother or sister, and so if you look at life through that perceived scarcity, you are going to tend to want to get as much of it as you can for yourself, and when you get it, you are going to want to keep it at all costs. We had an... An old member here in this congregation, Tom Hudgel, was fond of saying to me, conservatives are just those who have something to conserve. <laughs> and so the truth is we are never less loving than when we are most afraid. Politicians know this. Fear contracts our vision and narrows our boundaries of caring. Love, on the other hand, said Buscaglia, is the confidence that there is enough, that there is something in and beyond us that is greater than all that is against us. And when we look at life through the lens of abundance, then we do have the courage to risk. We have the ability to give generously. And I was morning that the whole witness of the gospel is that there is enough that there is one beyond us who is generous, who wants to bless us. And so to live in faith is to live courageously. Courage is simply faith lived out. Of course, there is a second possible plausible answer here, and it goes in a very different direction. Maybe... It was this one and not the other two, simply because he was more realistic about his limits. He understood that there is only a certain amount that you can do in a 24-hour day. And so he had not overscheduled himself. He was able to respond to the unexpected, unlike the priest and the Levite, who had so many things to do, so many people to see, that Even though they had compassion in their hearts, their schedule crowded out their love. I remember hearing about this experiment. You may have heard of this. It was done at Princeton Seminary, second-rate institution in New Jersey. (laughs) The professor was trying to ascertain what makes people act lovingly or not so. And so he enlisted 15 seminarians You should never put 15 seminarians together in the first place to try to ascertain. They were told that they should show up at a classroom at one end of campus at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And when they got there, they were divided into three groups. The first five were handed an envelope with these instructions. You have 15 minutes to get from here to a place on the other side of campus. You don't have time for anything else. If you loiter, your grade might be docked. And these, the professor labeled the high hurry group. The next five opened their envelopes, which said, you have 45 minutes to get from here across campus. Plenty of Don't get distracted. Don't do too many other things. And this, of course, was the middle hurry group. The final third opened their envelopes and these words. Any time between now and 5 o'clock, report to this room on the other side of campus and you will be told what to do next. And of course, is the low hurry group. Now, unbeknownst to any of these 15 seminarians, the professor had already made arrangements with a group of drama students from Princeton to simulate along the path that all 15 would have to go to simulate some genuine human needs. So here was one woman who was crying uncontrollably. He was another man who was lying down, face down, as though he were unconscious. And every one of these 15 had to pass along this way. The interesting result, not one of the high hurry group stopped. Two of the medium group stopped. And all five of the low hurry group stopped. And the point, time and schedule are a moral category. You have probably heard the expression, if you're too busy to pray, you're too busy. But it is equally true, if we are too busy to care, then we are overscheduled. And there is no one to blame for that but ourselves. And you might ask on this Labor Day Sunday, What are the implications for us as individuals, as a congregation, with so many things coming up this fall? There is, however, a third possible answer, because every good sermon has three points. And to be honest, this is the one that is most intriguing to me. It's not original. I first heard it through a creative biblical scholar by the name of Walter Wink. Walter said he thought it was the Samaritan rather than the priest and the Levite precisely because he was a Samaritan and a very special kind of Samaritan. Now, in order to understand that, you need to remember that in the first century, Samaritans were considered to be half-breeds by the Jews. You don't have to have a PhD in history to know that children of mixed racial marriages are often treated quite harshly in our world, um, not fully accepted by either group. So to be born into those circumstances was in many cases to inherit an incredible burden. And Walter said that given that, Samaritans tended to respond in one of three ways. The vast majority simply gave up in the face of that terrible prejudice. They said there's no use in even trying. And so they spent most of their life living on the sidelines in a kind of quiet despair. A smaller number of Samaritans actually went to the opposite extreme. They were so angry at the injustice being done against them, that they decided to hit back against their perpetrators. And so they practiced violence against Jews and Romans who were treating them that way. And we have records of numerous uprisings by first century Samaritans. The problem was that the number of Samaritans were so small that those who chose to live by the sword more often died by the sword. You know the old Yiddish expression, if a chicken picks a fight with an elephant, the chicken better be agile. That sort of applies here. But Walter says there was a third kind of Samaritan, and this one the smallest in number, who instead of giving up in despair or blowing up in anger, chose rather to somehow transform their suffering into a kind of sensitivity and compassion. In other words, they knew what it felt like to be hurt. They knew what it felt like to be left by the side of the road. And so they intentionally decided not to do to others what had been done to them. And Walter said he thought this man making his way along the path may have been this kind of third Samaritan. He saw the man by the side of the road. He thought to himself, I know exactly what that feels like. That is my life writ large. And because I have been beaten down by life, because I have felt like I was left by the side of the road, I want to help this one along. It's what Father Henry Nouwen used to call being a wounded healer somehow to take your pain, your suffering, and to transform it into help for others who are suffering. Now, I have to be honest and say that as a white male in our society, I have never really been the object of that kind of systematic prejudice, as were Samaritans in those days, as are Native Americans and African Americans and Hispanics, and women of all of these categories, I am constantly amazed by the refusal of those who have never known the brunt of discrimination to refuse to listen and learn from those who have. It is one of the worst problems in our society to this day. However, on the other hand, there have been times in my life where I have felt like I had the legs cut out from underneath me or that I was left by the side of the road. And I know you well enough to know that some of you have been people who were uh, people of sorrow and acquainted with grief. You have lost not only parents, but spouses and children. You have dealt with problems of alcohol and with alcoholics. You have been the victims of broken marriages and broken dreams. The reality is that life has a way of working us all over before it is done with us. And therefore, we confront the choice that faced that Samaritan. We can give up in despair. We can be crushed into immobility. We can blow up in anger and spend the rest of our lives screaming, it isn't fair, walking around like time bombs of resentment. Or perhaps we can open ourselves to that incredible transformation where the wounds that we have received actually inspire us to become part of the answer rather than part of the problem. Now, what is the secret of great alchemy? I suppose we could spend every Sunday from now till the end of the year talking about that. This morning, let me just make one suggestion. It seems to me that the secret to turning our suffering from into suffering with cum passion goes back again to a basic choice that every one of us has. Put simply, how do you regard your aliveness in history? That is your body, your mind, your family, your place in history. We have two choices. We can approach our lives from the vantage point of entitlement. I deserved to be born. I have a right to these things in my life. And if entitlement is your viewpoint, then when injustice, when unfairness breaks into your life, and it will, you are either going to give up in despair or you are going to blow up in anger. But the other choice is to realize instead of entitlement, that life is a gift, that birth is a that you and I are in this world not because we deserve it, not because we have a right to it, but simply because of the gracious generosity of one who wanted us to be and who wants to bless us. And if that is your starting point, then gratitude rather than attitude Becomes the way you live out your life. Which brings me back to where I started. Why do you suppose it was this one, the Samaritan, and not the priest or the Levite? We can't be sure. Maybe he was just the bravest because he lived out of his, li- his life out of a sense of abundance rather than scarcity. Maybe he was just more realistic about his limits. And so he actually had some time to care. Or Could it have been that because he knew what it felt like to be beaten down, left by the side of the road, somehow he transformed that suffering from into suffering with others? The choice, it seems to me, is always ours the opportunity to become a wounded healer. Go and do likewise, he said. Amen.